Now, on that same occasion, there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Our Father, we're always sobered when national tragedy comes to our shores, and in this sense, even across our world. We are reminded through the words of Yeshua, the Messiah, that indeed, Tragedy is indiscriminate. It falls on the just and on the unjust. But it is a reminder, you said, Lord Jesus, of the judgment that is to come, and that unless we change our mind about you and confess you as Lord, that we too will perish in our sin. Father, we know your word says that you have been revealed through the creation, that your eternal power, your divine nature... All of your attributes are clearly seen through the things that you have created, and so that people are without excuse, but you told us that men will suppress the truth in their unrighteousness by following and worshiping the creation rather than the creator God who is blessed forever. We think of our own nation, Father, that denied you as creator and substituted an evolutionary model that mitigates against everything in Scripture. How foolish we are, and you told us that when men reject you as creator, you give them over to sensuality. And if they don't repent of that, you will give them over to homosexuality. And if they don't repent of that, you warn that you would give them over to a reprobate, depraved, upside-down mind where we would call good evil and evil good. And Father, I fear that we are at that point You speak of wrath that is eschatological that will come in the tribulation. You speak of eternal wrath, but you speak of the wrath that is right now today being revealed from heaven to a people, to a world that rejects your principles. So help us not to miss the lessons. Help us in the midst of men and women who are captured with fear to warn them of the judgment that is to come. You said, don't fear him who at most can kill the body, but fear him who is able to destroy body and soul in hell. So give us wisdom in these days to share Christ like we've never shared him before. May these days not be days where we sit on our hands, where the great commission is buckled up by some virus, but we would be obedient to take the gospel to the world. We just sang, Lord Jesus, show us Christ. You said the scriptures speak about you, and certainly in every respect from Genesis to Revelation. And so as we study your word today, show us yourself. Help us to see you in all of your splendor and glory that we might love you more passionately and follow you more closely and share you with a lost world. Help me, Father, fill me and anoint me. Take the message to all who are hearing wherever they may be live streaming. 
And I ask it in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Take your Bibles with you this morning and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 2. I thought about maybe changing the message, but no, I said I'm going to preach this. God's given it to me, and I will address in a later message some of the things that are going on and how we can have a biblical perspective. Genesis chapter 2, you know, the Bible tells us if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The present moral and social decline in our day is direct directly related to our rejection of God in his holy, infallible word. And if you know anything about the book of Genesis, you know it is the number one attacked book in all of the Bible. And Satan knows that if he can get you to question one part of the Bible, he can get you to question all of the Bible. That if you have to reinterpret the historicity of Genesis, then you can easily reinterpret the morality that is unfolded in Genesis. Satan is so slick, he is a liar, he is the father of lies. And if you can't believe what God said about the creation of the world, then why should you believe what he said about the creation of marriage? And so we live in a day where there's a spirit of unbelief that is filling not just our nation, but our world. And Satan knows if he can wreck our homes, he can ruin our churches, and that if he can ruin our churches, he can destroy our nation. And certainly if he destroys this nation that is led in the proclamation of the gospel for 150 years, that last bright vestige of truth will be gone. God is a home builder. The devil is a home wrecker. Here we are in the book of Barashit. It means in Hebrew, in the beginning. It's genesios in, in Greek. It means beginning. This is the book of beginnings. And if you know anything about Genesis, you know, at least in kernel form, all of the great truths of all of the doctrines of Scripture are found right here in this book. So I want to begin reading Genesis 2. Follow along in your Bible, starting now in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. That was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This was a very beautiful marriage when it began, and they had, I suppose, some advantages that you and I do not have today. For instance, Adam never had to hear Eve say, you're not the only man I could have married. (laughs) And certainly, Eve never had to hear Adam say, why don't you cook like my mother? Or when I was a boy. No, he married the most beautiful woman in the world. And all joking aside, what we find here in Genesis chapter 2 is God's structure on what a healthy marriage should look like. This is a familiar text of Scripture. 
And if you slide into, I've read this a thousand times, and you've slid it into pride and arrogance, and you've become an unteachable person. We need to know God's truth thoroughly, because if the average evangelical knew God's truth and was living God's truth and teaching God's truth, our nation would not be in the mess that it is. In 1920, one in 100 marriages ended in divorce. In 2020, approximately 50 out of 100 end in divorce. And the evangelical record is not that much different from the people of the world. So this is a very important foundational passage on what God says on marriage, and it is habitually quoted in the New Testament both by Jesus and the apostles. It's basic theology on marriage. And theology is important because theology is a reflection of what God is like. And when we understand theology, when we understand what we believe, then we know so much better how it is that we are to behave. And so I want us to observe, first of all, that marriage is made by God the Father. Three critical principles that I want us to think through. First, that marriage is made by God the Father. We often refer to marriage as a divine institution, and that's correct. But what do we mean by a divine institution? Divine institution is a principle that is established or ordained by God for the purpose of preserving and protecting the entire human race. And there are three such divine institutions that God himself started. First, there is marriage, or what we might call the family. Second, there is a system of worship. And third, there is what we call government. God established these three institutions, the family, the church, and the government, to help us to live in this world. But before God ever established the government, before God ever established a system of worship, the very first institution that God established is that of the family. So let's carefully think through this first theological principle that marriage is made by God the Father. First, I want you to notice that God planned a bride for Adam. We're told here in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. I'm looking across the page here in my Bible, and it's interesting to think about how the creation unfolded. God made the land, and he called it the earth. He made the waters, and he called it the sea. And in Genesis 1.10, he says it was good. Then God made the plants and all the fruit-bearing trees and all the vegetation, and God said in Genesis 1.12, it was good. Then he made the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets, and we're told in Genesis 1.18, then God said it was good. Then God made everything that moved in the sea and all the birds that fly in the air, and in Genesis 1.21, God said it is good. Then God made the animals, and he made all the creeping things. And again, in Genesis 1.23, he declares it was good. And then God makes the pinnacle of his creation when he made Adam, who is different from the animal world. We are not some sophisticated, highly evolved two-legged animal. God breathed into man the breath of life. Only people have the capacity or the desire to pray, to worship God, because we uniquely are made in the image of God. And after God creates Adam, God declares here in Genesis 1.31, it was very good. But then for the first time in the creation account, man is without a woman, and God says it is not good. And he reminds us of two very different views concerning the creation of a man and a woman and why it is not good. 
Why does God say it is not good? One woman quipped, well, God made the man, and he thought, well, I can do better than that, so he made the woman. But obviously, that's not the reason. And it's not, too, that God had some afterthought, oops, I forgot to make a woman. God has no afterthoughts. God is omniscient, he is immutable, he never changes, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But as we will see in our study, one of the reasons God did not create Eve at the same time that he created Adam is because he wanted to reveal a very critical truth to Adam about his wife and to all of us here listening today about marriage itself. Again, in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. The aloneness of man was a bad thing. In fact, in the Hebrew text, the word not good is emphatic. There's ways in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. I've only learned Hebrew and Greek. I don't know Aramaic, but there's only a few chapters that are written in Aramaic. But you can underscore, highlight, mark in red through grammatical structure. And literally, the Hebrew text says, not good for the man to be alone. This was not a good thing in God's eyes. Okay, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, this is what I'm going to do. I will make him a helper suitable, an ezeneged, a helper suitable for him. And the word that God uses here for helper suitable is a Hebrew word that means someone who helps or completes or fulfills something else. It's the counterpart that Adam did not yet have. Adam was alone. He was incomplete, the text is reminding us. He was in isolation. He's isolated in the midst of absolute perfection. And so it's important for us to understand that God planned a bride for Adam, that this was not some afterthought. This was God's plan from the beginning. And so secondly, not only did he plan a bride for Adam, God provided a bride from Adam. God provided a bride from Adam. We are told now in verse 19, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name and it stuck. Now, I know it's popular today to think that, you know, way back then, you know, Adam must have been, if he ever existed, some kind of caveman, you know, some kind of knuckle-dragging ignoramus. But the truth is, is that people prior to the fall were a whole lot smarter than we are. Adam was not some slow, dumb, stupid man. The fact is, is that he had to name all the animals. Oh, that's a hippopotamus. That's a giraffe. And then he had to remember the name. He was no idiot. He's a lot smarter than most of us prior to the fall. And so we're told in verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But, uh uh-oh, for Adam, there was not found an ezeneged, a helper suitable to complete him, a helper suitable for him. So why in the middle of this section on marriage, does God bring up this thing about naming all the animals? Because God wanted to instill in Adam the desire for companionship. So God says, Adam, I have a job for you. I want you to name all the creatures that I've made. 
And no doubt, just as Christ sovereignly had a fish swallow a coin so that when Peter threw his hook in the water, he could retrieve that coin from the fish's mouth and pay his tax. And just as the Lord Jesus had the rooster crow at just the right time, and just as he rode on a colt that had never been ridden on before, God has sovereignty over all of his creation. And just as God brought the animals into the ark, God no doubt brought the animals one by one, every type that he made, by Adam for him to name. And so there goes Mr. Giraffe. Oh, there's Mrs. Giraffe. There's Mr. Pig. There's Mrs. Pig. And God was showing him that he was incomplete. Two by two, they came. Each one had a compliment. And Adam realized he was alone. There is not found a helper suitable for him. Okay, God, what are you going to do about it? surgery, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. By the way, Sir James Simpson, who developed chloroform, got his inspiration to seek a way to put people to sleep under surgery from this text of Scripture. He thought, well, if God could put Adam to sleep before he operated on him, maybe that's what we should do with patients. Understand, before that, what would you do? You'd bite a stick, you'd chew a rag, you'd take a slug of whiskey. So he got his motivation from this text. And so we're told then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Woman was not taken, as it's often been said, from man's head to rule over him, nor was she taken from his feet to be trampled on, but from his side under his arm, to be protected by him and loved by him. And she's represented here as completing Adam. Since Eve is formed from Adam's side, she is bound to him and she's obligated to be a help to him. And likewise, Adam is incomplete without Eve. She is made from him. And he is called to give her protection and affection and care. And so again, in verse 22, it says that God fashioned, you should underline or circle that word, God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought it to the man. If you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, which we give you if you come to meet the pastor. Out in the Hebrew, the Hebrew text literally reads, is brought out in the margin. You might want to underline it there. God built into a woman. God built into a woman. The Hebrew word is banah, translated here, fashioned. And it's a word that's used in Hebrew of something that is designed in a special way. It's custom designed. Eve is custom made. For Adam. And so in these verses, we learn that God reveals to Adam that it was not good for him to be alone. It was not good for him to be alone. And by the way, that is one of the strongest adversatives in the Hebrew language. Loto, under no circumstances, is it good for you to be alone. And so God makes Eve, who perfectly in a custom way corresponds to him. And by the way, this is an affirmation of the equality of Eve to Adam. 1,405 years before Christ, when Moses pens this book, he is recording the full equality of a man and a woman. 
Now, I know in modern culture, we think, well, we've fought that up. You know, we are now affirming what man has denied for centuries. But Jewish people, all the way back in the time of Moses, understood the full equality between a man and a woman. And so we have a beautiful picture here of our first parents here in the garden. And nowhere, by the way, in Scripture does it deny the full equality between a man and a woman. Now, unfortunately, in our day, we want to affirm equality and we want to make equality sameness. And while there is equality of person before God, we are equally made in the image of God. It does not mean that we have the same roles. And so complementarianism versus egalitarianism, those are two theological terms you should know. Egalitarianism says that men and women are equal, not only in their stature before God, but in their function before God. Where complementarianism, again, it's just a catch word like Trinity, not found in the Bible, but a theological truth that God is one who exists in three persons. Complementarianism affirms that men and women are equal, but they are made in a complementary fashion because God has designed them differently with different roles. So God, having planned a bride for Adam and having prepared a bride from Adam, I want you to notice now, beginning in verse 22, God presented a bride to Adam. God presented a bride to Adam. And so the anesthetic wears off and Adam wakes up and he has something to say about it. We read in verse 22, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. God brought Eve to Adam. And the verse that follows is one of the most emotional verses in the entire chapter. After Adam, through painless surgery, there's no pain, no disease, no sickness, of course, before the fall, just as there will be no pain or sickness or disease in heaven. But after his surgery, God brings Eve to Adam. She's only a couple of minutes old. And he looks up after the surgery and he says, verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You say, that doesn't sound very romantic. Sounds more like this statement an anatomy professor would make. The Living Bible paraphrases it by saying, Adam exclaimed, this is it. Or today he might say, oh boy, fantastic. She's the one, she's exactly what I need. He was saying that she's just like me with certain improvements. She is flesh of my flesh. She is bone of my bones. Whatever he is, she is. She is fully human. He is fully human. He is fully made in the image of God. She is fully made in the image of God. He is responsible directly to God. She is responsible directly to God. And by the way, this particular text is the cornerstone principle for marriage as Adam accepted his wife by faith. Now, I've never met a person standing at the marriage altar who said, I didn't want to marry this person. They're all convinced that this is the one. And Christians might couch it in more biblical terms and say, this is the one God provided for me. And so here's Adam. He knew absolutely nothing about Eve. He never heard her speak, but he trusted God that this was God's provision for him. And when you make that decision at a marriage altar and you need to teach your children, some of us are zoning out, but our kids have been total failures in marriage. 
And sometimes because we haven't paid attention and we haven't taught our children these principles. We need to be faithful in season and out of season when we sit down, when we rise up, when we're at the table, to teach them the principle of God's word. And we are to teach them that when God gives them a mate, then by faith they receive that mate as a gift from God. You say, has God changed? No, he is immutable. I, the God of Israel, change not, Malachi writes. The writer of the Hebrews says he's the same, yesterday, today, and forever. God is sovereign over your life, and when he gives you a mate, you need to receive that mate is from God's hand. Now, notice what Adam says here in verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of Ish, out of man. It's a play on words. Adam is overwhelmed with the fact that God would take a part of his body and construct his wife from him. Now, while saying that, I recognize that God doesn't call everyone to be married. This is God's norm in Scripture, as he will affirm in this chapter. And again, in Genesis 3 and throughout the New Testament, God's norm is for most people to be married. But with that said, God hasn't called everyone to be married, and we need to be sensitive to that truth. Some people are set apart in a unique, special way for the plans that God has. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks of an undistracted service that a single person can give to the work of the kingdom. And so Paul says, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. If you remember in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, the chapter opens now concerning the things about which you wrote. They had written him a letter with a bunch of questions. And so starting in chapter 7 through the rest of the book, he ticks off those questions one by one. And one of their questions was in light of the persecution, in light of the fact that a lot of women were losing their husbands, was it a good thing to give your daughter to someone in marriage? And Paul said, well, you know, God's plan is for people to be married. Some people are gifted like I am. And Paul never married. Paul was single his entire life. He had a right to be married. He'll argue that in 1 Corinthians 9. But he was single. Now, this is not a spiritual gift. The gift of celibacy, as you'll see in some spiritual gift inventories. No, this is not something that God does through you. This is something that God does to you. And it doesn't necessarily mean that a person who is single their whole life doesn't have a sex drive. They may very well, but they have the kind of sex drive that does not need to be fulfilled through a marriage relationship. And then some people are like eunuchs, Jesus said, some who are made eunuchs by men, some that God makes in that fashion. But understand that when you're single, you can give undistracted devotion to the work of the kingdom. When I was single, I would leave my apartment at 7 a.m. in the morning, and very often I'd come home at 10 or 11 at night. And at the peak of my ministry before I was married, I was leading nine different Bible studies a week apart from the large group meetings that I spoke at. Then, you know, this club that I had formed, Bachelors Till the Rapture, of which I was the only member, and as soon as I met Audrey, it was dissolved, you know, I learned that there's another half to the whole thing. Paul says, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. 
and his interests are divided. And by the way, that's a good thing. Your interests need to be divided, not in a worldly fashion. That's not what he's referring to contextually, but your need to give time and focus and attention to the one that God has called you to and the children that will come from your loins. So everything changed at that point in my life. The undistracted devotion was very, very different. But for most people, and by the way, we need to be careful. We need to be very careful. Some married people think it's their ministry to marry off single people. And they need to be reminded that there are some people that God has called to be single their whole life, and they're not weird or anything else. God just has a different plan for them. And some people are being harassed. When are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? Maybe never, because God has a different plan. But for most of us, the plan is to be married. And so Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called woman. Now, contrary to popular opinion, the word woman does not mean woe is man. Actually, our English word comes from Anglo-Saxon, and originally the word was she shall be called womb man, W-O-M-B, womb man, the man with the womb. But it kind of got hard to say womb man without spitting, so we dropped the M-B and we just became woman. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. So that's the first observation I want to make this morning. Marriage is made by God the Father because the Father is the one who plans a bride for Adam, provides a bride from Adam, presents the bride to Adam. But there's a second observation about marriage that's made in heaven. Marriage is managed by God the Holy Spirit. Marriage is managed by God the Holy Spirit. Now, what do I mean that marriage is managed by God the Holy Spirit? Well, if you will notice verse 23, the verse is introduced with the words, the man said, and then in our English Bibles, we have some quotation marks at the beginning, at the end of the verse, indicating that this is a direct quote from Adam. But then in verse 24, there's no quotation. Why is that? Because these are not the words of Adam. These are the words of God the Holy Spirit flowing through the pen of Moses as he records this text of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit is reminding us that marriage is a divine institution. Notice what Moses writes by the Spirit in verse 24. For this reason, that is because God made Eve from Adam to be married, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Verse 24, in essence, is an interpretation of what is happening, which is why verse 24 is quoted four times in the New Testament. God is reminding us and recording us for all time in his word that marriage did not evolve, it did not develop uh, as the evolutionist or even the theistic evolutionist argues in our day. And they have no other choice but to conclude that if you believe in evolution or fake apologists like Tim Keller, who believes that it's viable for a Christian to embrace theistic evolution, you embrace theistic evolution and the foundations crumble. No, God established marriage at a particular period of time. 
We didn't evolve through the millennia of time in their minds and millions and over billions of years into the marriage institution. God created it at the start of when he made Adam and Eve. And yet we have mega church pastors like T.D. Jakes, who's trying to deal with all the homosexual gay people or people in his church who have homosexual children, how they are to deal with this. And so he says, and I quote, Paul spends a lot of time wrestling back and forth, trying to understand, should a woman wear a head covering? Should you cut your hair? I mean, they grappled back then and we're grappling now because we're humans and we are flawed and we're not God. Once you understand you're not God, you leave yourself an out clause to grow. Then he adds, LGBTs of different types and sorts have to find a place of worship that reflects what your views are and what you believe like anyone else. And so when asked if his position on homosexuality had evolved, T.D. Jake says, and I quote, yes, it has evolved and it is evolving. Well, I want to tell you, God's word is not evolved and it is not evolving. It is static, it is eternal, and it has never, ever changed. Jen Hatmaker who sold millions of Bible studies in evangelical churches across America, writes this. This is a fact. Thousands of churches and millions of Christ followers faithfully read the scriptures and with thoughtful and academic work come to different conclusions on homosexuality and countless others. Godly, respectable leaders have exegeted the Bible, and there is absolutely not unanimity on its interpretation. There never has been. Historically, Christian theology has always been contextually bound and often inconsistent with itself, an inconvenient truth we prefer to selectively explain. The fact is, Ms. Hatmaker, you are wrong. Bible-believing Christians, since the creation of time, since the days of Moses, have believed that marriage is defined between one man and one woman, and that homosexuality is a perversion, it is against nature, and it is a distortion of what God intended to be. And so when asked if she would attend a so-called gay wedding, she said, and I quote, I would attend that wedding with gladness. I would drink champagne. I want the very best for my gay friends. I want love and happiness and faithfulness and commitment and community. Yes, that's an easy answer. Then asked if she thought such a marriage is holy, a gay marriage is holy. She said, I do. And my views here are tender. I've seen too much pain and rejection of the intersection of the gay community and the church. Every believer that witnesses that much overwhelming sorrow should be tender enough to do some hard work here. No hard work or study needed. God has said what he meant, and he meant what he said. That does not mean we are ever to be hateful towards a gay person. Never, ever, 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 ever. But if we do not tell them the truth, we are being one of the most unloving, damning persons that we can be. And yet Beth Moore on Jen Hatmaker's show in January says this. It was a blast to be a guest on my beloved friend Jen Hatmaker's For the Love podcast. Oh my gosh, she says, I laughed my head off with that woman. If you don't want to love her, you do not ever, 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 ever need to get to know her. 
girl has the honest to goodness world's best personality and will love you to no end through thick and thin. Jen, I love you dearly. I am so unworthy of your words, but I'm thankful to God that you see me through the eyes of grace. Thank you, my friend. Maybe Beth Moore thinks God's standards have changed. If she really loved this person, then she would obey 1 Timothy 6, 3, and 4. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus defined marriage between a man and a woman in Mark 10, Luke 19, Luke 16. Don't ever say that Jesus never spoke on the subject of homosexuality when he affirmed marriage between a man and a woman and that God uniquely and differently created us. He was affirming what God said. And if those who do not hold to the sound words of our Lord Jesus and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is connected, he is conceited and understands nothing. But it doesn't surprise me on Beth Moore, who this morning, as she has been bragging all weekend long, is preaching in a church, disobeying the clear teaching of Scripture. But you see, all these weak-willed pastors who trip over their own skirts are afraid to stand up in their churches and say, we don't need Beth Moore Bible studies in our church. If you're a pastor listening to me today, man up and do what is right, because when we distort the roles that God makes between men and women, we are harming the local church, we are feminizing little boys, and we are destroying the very foundations of marriage. Listen, if there was not the first man and the first woman, and if people are just animals who are procreating with one another, then where did marriage originate from? You see, evolution is a denial of what God has said in terms of the marriage institution. And it's a denial of the sacredness of sex, that we're just like animals. And so we teach kids we've come from animals, and so what do they do? They live like animals. But God is clear that from the first man and the first woman, he created a hallowed institution, verse 24, for this cause. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Have you ever wondered what Adam and Eve knew about mothers and fathers? Remember, they're the only two people alive. Why did God put this in his word? Well, not for them, but for us, because obviously this verse has nothing to do with them, uh, you know, leaving a father and mother. And for that matter, it has nothing to do with you abandoning your father and mother when you get married. As a matter of fact, God's word is very clear. You know, in the early years, you are dependent on your mom and dad. You can't do anything. They have to change your diapers, feed you, put you down, watch over you. You never abandon them because God says in the end, when the role reverses, 1 Timothy 5, you're to make sure they're taken care of. And the one who doesn't take care of his own is worse than an unbeliever. We take that verse and we usually apply it down in terms of caring for our children, legitimate application. God applies it upward in terms of children and grandchildren watching over their father and mother. 
But among other things, what you find in this verse is you are looking at the authority from God's word itself for a civil religious ceremony that we call marriage, a covenantal commitment that is being made where a person leaves his first loyalty, dad and mom, and he has joined his wife and a new family joins. And Jesus understood this God-ordained institution because right after he quotes this verse, he then says in Matthew 19, 6, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Or some of your translations say, let no man divorce. It's the same word. Some of you, I may even say that. You say, Pastor Carl, do you know you're speaking to some divorced people here today? Yes. Over half our people are on second marriages, some on third. We grow by conversion largely this church. And so the sins of the culture come into the church. But I know many of you would stand with me and you would say, Pastor, tell them. Tell them about the heartache of divorce. Tell them about the anguish. Tell them what it does to the children. Keep them from making some of the same mistakes we've made. And I'm not here to throw rocks on people who've been divorced. If you know me, you know that's not true. There's forgiveness through the blood of Christ. But we need to be able to say to our kids, I miss the ideal and not just always be saying, well, you know my ex, what he was like. No, we need to be able to say, this is what God ordained. This is the picture that God wants for you when you get married someday. Yes, I know that sometimes marriages break up because of adultery. And that's the chief cause for divorce today. Some of you have told me your story. You said, I was the man, I was the woman. I cheated on my spouse. I went out on him or her. And you broke the relationship. And some of you are absolutely heartbroken because you were divorced against your will. You didn't want a divorce. But look, you can't unscramble eggs at this point. You have to move forward, and you have to move forward with God's standard. And we need our children because every message that is coming down the pike is shouting at them that marriage can be whatever you want it to be. There's no such thing as gay marriage. Abraham Lincoln was once asked, if you call a tail of a dog a leg, how many legs does the dog have? He asked that of a little boy, our president, our 16th president. The little boy said he has five legs. And Lincoln said, no, he has four legs. You can call a tail whatever you want it, but he only has four legs. And you can call in the highest court of the land as a direct result of politicians that force the case all the way up there. You can call it a marriage, but it's not a marriage any more than there's such things as transgender people. There's no such thing. Look, we are worried sometimes about acts of terrorism and other things. The worst things that have ever happened to this nation in the last 50 years came from the highest court of the land that came from politicians that forced cases to the Supreme Court where we said it is okay to murder little babies in the womb and it's okay to sanction and call holy what God calls a perversion. And we wonder why our nation is failing why our world is failing. Because what we have exported as a nation, 
Nations all across the planet have embraced. Who would have ever thought that we would take abortion to the point where we have some squirming little baby who survived there in that operating room and the physician with the mother says, kill it. Life begins at the moment of conception and it is to be protected as is marriage. It was not Adam and Steve. It was not Eve and Ethel. It was Adam and Eve, one man, one woman until death separates them. And so God here is speaking not just to those who have failed, but to some of you who have never been married. You need to be able with authority to teach your children. And if you don't teach them, you know what they're going to get? The message of the world that is just the opposite. You need to protect their minds. Some of these kids' movies, you know, there's some Elsa song. I was reading the words and, you know, anything goes. No, it doesn't, Elsa, whoever she is. A lot goes. There are moral standards and kids are singing songs and hymns and watching videos and, and they're being fed a message from the evil one himself. And so I want to encourage you today to put your marriage under the management of God, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 24. He says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave. The New American Standard 78 says, the newer ones say, be joined. But that's what the word means. He shall leave, he shall cleave, and they shall become one flesh. Three key verbs in the Hebrew text that really give us God's plan and blueprint for marriage. You might want to underline them, leave, be joined or cleave, and become. In fact, I would say most of the problems that I deal with as a pastor in marriage counseling comes from a misunderstanding of these three words. So let's think our way through these three magnificent principles that the Spirit of God gave us. First, there's the principle of leaving. The principle of leaving. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother. Let's think about leaving. Let's think about the severing from the perspective of the parents and also from the perspective of the children. Our job as parents is to prioritize our relationship in this life, number one, with the living God, number two, with our spouse, and then with our children. And when that perspective is kept in order, we're in a position to teach our children how to live by God's principles. We need to teach them from the Word of God how to make godly decisions. We need to prepare them how to work hard. Kids know how to work a video screen. They don't know how to work a lawnmower. We need to teach them how to work hard, how to earn money, how to save it, how to tithe it, how to give it. Our goal is to help them someday to stand on their own two feet. And if you let them, as a parent, leave father and mother, when they get married, they'll come back to you as your best friends. Listen to your pastor. I meet couples sometimes who've been married 10, 15 years, and some of them are still going back to their parents. And, the, and in some of those cases, the parents have never let their kids go. The, the parents are controlling the strings in the marriage. Now, the Hebrew word here for leave, azab, is not a harsh word. It doesn't communicate abandonment, but it's a word that means to loosen something. It conveys the idea of freedom from something. And it's the thought that we are to set our children free. And so severing is not just a physical severing, but also a financial, a mental, 
uh, and emotional. It doesn't mean that your parents can't give you wise counsel. They might be able to, especially if they know Christ and some who don't know Christ just from life experience. But we need to recognize that as parents, our job is to work ourselves out of a job. You leave father and mother. Why? Because there's a higher relationship. The higher relationship is not the parent-child relationship. The higher relationship is the husband-wife relationship. You know, sometimes people say, well, we're going to start a family. And I think right off, they don't know what God says about the family. And by that, they mean we're going to have kids. No, your family started the day you stood at that marriage altar. All that happens when you have children is that that family grows and it enlarges. But again, and, and again, you know, our, our job is to let those kids go, let them rule their own family. I meet people who come in, they're asking me like these questions, you know, we thought this year we'd have our own Thanksgiving and mom and dad are putting pressure on us to come to their house. And I said, well, why don't you have your own Thanksgiving? Why don't you tell dad and mom, this year we're gonna do our own thing. Parents, sometimes they're controlling and pulling the strings when they need to let their children go and be free. And again, as you do that, they'll come back to you as great friends. You shouldn't always say, hey, why don't you do it like my dad did it? Why don't you do it like my mom did it? Maybe we need to say, honey, why don't you do it the way you want to do it? Because you're the home worker here. There's a leaving. Secondly, there's the principle of cleaving. Cleaving. For this cause, a man shall be joined to his, shall leave his father and mother and cleave or be joined to his wife. The word cleave is a Greek word, excuse me, a Hebrew word that means to glue or to weld. And by the way, the counterpart in Greek means the same thing, to cling together, to unite. Job uses this particular Hebrew word, dabak, when he speaks of the skin that cleaves to his bones. Ezekiel uses the word dabak, cleave, when he speaks of the scales that cleave to a fish. And even King David uses it like the prophet Jeremiah to describe the tongue that cleaves or sticks or is glued, so to speak, to the roof of your mouth. But God's point here in Genesis 2 is that when two people get married, there's a bonding that takes place. And that's why in Malachi 2, God describes divorce as a violent act. But unfortunately, many couples enter into marriage without the thought that this thing is for keeps. You know, I had a couple in this past week, and they want me to marry them next December, and I can. There's no problem with that. And, and so they do the preliminary forms that I, I've got to know in my heart, yeah, this is within the bounds of what I will do as a pastor and what we'll do as elders as a church, what we've agreed upon. And I said, so here's your first assignment, and I gave them a DVD to listen to and a divorce. You see, the first session I'm going to have, six one-hour sessions, they'll have about 15 to 20 hours of homework, and they sign a thing, if you're unwilling to come to the six appointments and do all the homework, I'm not going to marry you. So don't show up without homework done, or I'm just not going to marry you. I'm not in the marrying business. And so I said, the first topic is the permanency of marriage. See, I want them to be so convinced 
that divorce is never an option, that that's not God's ideal by any respect, that if you enter into the marriage, if things don't work out, it will be till divorce do us part. A couple that walks in with that mentality is headed for trouble. Look, the people who get divorces and the people who don't, it's not that the people who don't don't have any problems. They all have problems. You bring two people together and the closest relationship of life, two sinners brought together, you're going to have problems. Paul affirms that in 1 Corinthians 7, 28. He says, if you get married, you will have trouble in this life. The difference is not problems, but whether or not we're willing to work through those problems God's way and with God's help and under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are to leave, we are to cleave. And so you make that commitment at the marriage altar until death do us part or until Christ comes again, we're gonna stick together through thick and thin. Beyond the principle of leaving and cleaving, there's a third management principle. And there is the principle of becoming one. There is the principle of becoming one. Let's read now all of verse 24. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. When a person gets married, they enter into a one flesh relationship. Really, the Scripture spells it out on three dimensions on a physical dimension, on a soulish dimension, and potentially on a spiritual level. Now, some look at this verse, and they only think of it in terms of the physical. And certainly, verses like 1 Corinthians 6, 16, Paul can even say if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he's become one flesh with her. So certainly, the physical is in view. But the Lord Jesus takes it far beyond that, as was intended in the Scriptures in the Old Testament, as God himself was married to Israel. And so in Matthew 19, the Lord Jesus quotes this verse from Genesis, and then he says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. They are a new indivisible unit. You are, yes, one physically when you get married, and God has nothing against sex. He designed it. That's why gayness, homosexuality, Paul says it's against nature. God installed the plumbing. He thought it up from the beginning to end. And sex is not something that God is down on. He developed it. He's trying to protect it. So he tells us in Scripture, you shall not commit adultery. He says, flee fornication. He says, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And when God gives us such commands, he's not trying to keep sex from us. He's trying to keep sex for us. He's trying to protect it, to preserve it. Don't you think it's weird that men in their 20s and 30s now need a pill to do what God intended for them to do naturally? Why is that? Because they have so distorted and perverted through porn and multiple relationships, God's plan for marriage. It's the most intimate of all relationships such that when the act is done, God can say, he knew his wife. And of course, not only is there enjoyment and intimacy, God said, be fruitful and multiply. And I know whenever I talk about having children, there's always infertile couples, and my heart goes out to them. And I know God has a different plan for some who will never be able to have children in this life. But we live in a day when 
people, even Christian people, because their mind has been shaped more by the world rather than by the word of God, that they view children as a hassle, as a bother, as a hindrance, rather than as a blessing and as a gift from God. Now, I know a lot of people think that children make a rich man poor, but the Bible would teach just the opposite. It makes a poor man richer. One of these days, I'm going to leave this world by death or by rapture, and I'm not going to take a thing with me. I brought nothing into the world. I'll take nothing out of it. But by the grace and mercy of God, because my children know and love Christ, I will meet them and be with them in heaven. Listen. I hope you have bought the ticket called eternal life. And if you're here today and you don't have that issue settled, you need to. But God calls us to have children, to be fruitful and multiply, to give us a godly offspring. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God makes us one, not just on a physical level, but a soulish level. God said it was not good for man to be alone. Why? Because he wanted Adam to have companionship and fellowship and friendship. And God designed the marriage to provide that. Look, the one I love more than anyone else in this world is the living God. He is my best friend. But my second best friend is Audrey. And my third best friends are my children. And that's how God designed it, that your spouse should be your second best friend, not your guy that you go hunting with or the guy you golf with. Your wife and your kids. And yeah, if you got some time for some other things, wonderful. But the bond that God gives you is a bond of companionship that he wants to bless. And God has also potentially called you to be, to be one on a spiritual level. And that's the blessing of true Christian marriage where you have two people who are born again. And that's why God warns in 2 Corinthians 6, what fellowship has light with darkness? What fellowship has a believer with an unbeliever? Absolutely none. And we have people who come through our church and they're converted and their spouse isn't yet. And they don't have that. And, and then there are those Christians who naively, because they were such babes in Christ, thought they were marrying a Christian only to find out he or she was not. And then there are those who disobediently married an unbeliever, something that God tells us in both Testaments never, ever, ever to do. But if you're in that situation, that is not God's plan for your life. I remember one lady in our church, Hygon, years ago, she came from Turkey, found Christ as her Savior, and she thought, oh, my husband needs the Lord too. And I'm sure she thought it would just be weeks or months before John gave his life to Christ. I can't remember exactly. I think it was 10 or 12 years later in this church that he finally yielded his will. And then John said, what did I miss for all these years? We, we missed the intimacy of getting on our knees and uniting our heart and going to a throne of grace and interceding for others and for each other and for our kids and our grandkids. God wants to bond you together, not just physically, not just in terms of a companion, soulish kind of thing, suke. It refers to our mind, our will, and our emotions, but on a spiritual level. And so Paul says in Ephesians, so husbands, 
ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. By the way, throw out this baloney that you need to be taught to love yourself. God's word says no one ever hated his own flesh. Why do you think people are so frantic fighting in Costco and in Walmart this week over the items on the shelf? Because they love themselves. Because they want that stuff for themselves. Don't tell me you have to learn to love yourself. That's psychobabble that has entered into the church. No one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it. He cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Paul is saying, listen, husbands, you need to lead in nourishing and cherishing your wife and no more real is the law of sowing and reaping than it is in a marriage relationship that what a man does to his wife, he does to himself. When he's kind to her, he's kind to himself. When he's mean to her, he's mean to himself. So do yourself a favor, love your wife, and you'll see all the benefits of it. One flesh, two personalities, brought together. They still have unique personalities, but two people brought together. And that's why, again, God says, I hate divorce because it's so painful. It tears two living people that God has joined. Not to mention, he will say what it's done to the children. And yet we live in a day, we got more books, DVDs, CDs, podcasts, marriage conferences, the track record of evangelicals is no different from that of pagans. See, it's one thing to hear this stuff. It's another thing to really meditate on it and let it get deep into our heart, so deep that it's a part of us that we can teach it to our children and our grandchildren, and if necessary, to teach from our failure, but to live it because God wants to bless us. And look, some of you are here and you're doing it solo. That's okay. You just be faithful to God and he will honor what he has called you to do. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one. And then the favorite verse preached in evangelical churches in America, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Hmm. All right, third and finally, are you with me? Marriage is made by God the Father. Marriage is managed by God the Spirit. Just very quickly, marriage is marked by God the Son. Three brief observations and I'm done. First, I'm reminded that God made Eve out of Adam's wounded body. He made Eve out of Adam's wounded body. And in the New Testament, God tells us through the Apostle Paul that marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church. So when Paul again writes the Ephesians, he says, husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. For what purpose? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory. That's what you're supposed to do, dad, or husband. You're supposed to be loving your wife so that she's becoming more like the Lord Jesus. And if you would ever ask her to entertain a movie or listen to music or garbage that would tear her down, you're doing the exact opposite. 
that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. And so in Scripture, the Messiah, as God is with Israel in the Old Testament, Christ is viewed as the groom and we as believers as the bride. And what we find in Genesis 2 is really an illustration of this truth. When God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he took one of the ribs from his side. Sleep, as you know, is often a metaphor for death in Scripture. And Adam's sleep illustrates, among other things, the death of the Lord Jesus. And just as God took a rib from Adam's side, Christ was pierced through on his side, showing that he was dead and purchasing you with his precious blood. God made Eve out of Adam's wounded body. God built Eve. There's a whole sermon on that. I wish we could spend an hour on it. God built Eve to be Adam's bride, verse 22. Then the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib from which he was taken from the man and brought her to the man. So God built this woman, literally. God built into a woman Eve to be Adam's bride. And right now God is building his church. He is fashioning his church. And one of these days, the last person who's going to be a member of the church will believe, could be in this church could be in some part of the world today, could be tomorrow, could be next week. The last man, the last woman, the last boy, the last girl will call upon Jesus in faith, and God will say, son, your church is built, go retrieve her, and he will come and get his bride, and we'll be caught up and transformed. We'll receive a body like Christ, having no spot or wrinkle, third and finally God designed Adam and Eve to be inseparably one. Eve was made from Adam, and God viewed them inseparably as one. And so the Bible repeatedly reminds us that when we get married, there's a joining that takes place. We already read, consequently, they are no longer two but one flesh. In the same way when we become believers in Yeshua and Jesus, the Messiah, when we become a part of the bride of Christ, we're believers who are inseparably joined to him. We are members of his body. Remember what Paul said to the Ephesians. So husbands ought to love one another, their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Again, no one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Why? Verse 30, because we are members of his body. You say, Pastor Carl, do you really think that was all pictured in the book of Genesis? Absolutely. The Holy Spirit tells us here in Ephesians, because we are members of his body. And then right after that, he quotes Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. And then Paul adds, the mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. It's a mystery, mysterion, you know the word. It is used in the New Testament to describe something that was once hidden and now has been revealed. The picture was once hidden, but it is now totally revealed in Jesus Christ in living color. He's building his church, and he's going to complete it. We've witnessed in this last week worldwide panic. And in other nations of the world, as you read, some of the panic that has ensued doesn't even compare to what we have witnessed in the United States. And we have studied Revelation for three years. 
And we have noted that there's coming a day when, indeed, God is going to begin to judge the world with eschatological wrath. He is judging the world today. God is unhappy with this world. He is unhappy with our nation. I don't know where our president stands spiritually today, but I thank God that he said we should have a day of prayer. I thought, well, that's a novel idea. First politician I heard, maybe we should pray about this. But we can't pray and ask God to bless and protect our nation when we're raising our puny little fists in his face. We're hating Israel. God says, I'll curse those that will curse Israel. The nations of the world are going against Israel. We have legalized the murder of the innocent. We are killing old people. We're calling things that God calls a perversion good. They're calling preachers like me hobophobic. They're calling pastors like me because I won't affirm a transgender lifestyle as hateful. No, they are the hateful people because they are going against God's standard in helping to lead people into a place of eternal retribution. God is on his throne. No one knows what will happen. But this is very different from the Spanish flu in the first part of the 20th century. Israel is in the land, which must take place before the second coming. The Jews have been gathered from over 100 nations into the land of Israel. We've become like the days of Noah and the days of Lot, days of moral compromise and days of sexual perversion. And I can't help but think that God is just giving us a taste. This is nothing compared to what is coming in the tribulation. This is nothing. God is giving man a taste. And Jesus said when these tragedies come, it's a reminder that people need to repent. Now, I don't know what your marriage is like today, but people ought to be able to look at your marriage and say, my, that's different from what I have. And that's a picture of Christ's love. And I don't know where you're at today, but I know today can be the first day of the rest of your life. And if you will submit to the authority of God's word and by his spirit, humble yourself and ask for his power, he'll help you. You say, I'm not even sure I'm saved. You better get that one figured out first. And I would have it nailed down before I left this building this morning. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Wherever you are, you may be live streaming in a foreign country, in another state, on one of our campuses. I want to ask you this morning, do you know absolutely if this were your last day on earth that heaven is your home? The scripture promises that Christ Jesus receives sinful men. It is a trustworthy statement. It deserves your full acceptance. Paul wrote, Christ came into the world to save sinners. My friend, he loves you. He died for you. He was pierced through for your iniquity. He paid in full the debt that you owe God that would take you an eternity to pull off. And if you will humble yourself and come as a bankrupt person, 
acknowledging that your sin is wrong and it deserves judgment and it needs forgiveness and changing. If you will come to the cross, God will save you today. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late for you. All of us are one heartbeat away from eternity. Would you in faith say, Lord Jesus, by your death, burial, and resurrection, save me and change me. The scripture says, he that believes has eternal life. Now, Father, we are living in a day of panic. And it seems to be deepening and broadening. But I pray as the body of Christ that we would be reminded that you have not given us a spirit of fear. May we speak boldly compassionately. May our words be seasoned with salt. May we even this week tell people of a Savior who has died. May the Great Commission in these days ahead not be chained by some virus, but however we meet or whatever in format, may more men and women and boys and girls find Jesus as Lord. And may we as the church be changed and conformed to the image of Christ. And above all, may people see it in our homes and in our marriages. We ask it for the glory of Jesus Christ and in his name, amen. Would you stand? Now, we're going to have an invitation. You may be in our Bluffton campus. You may be in Grays. You may be in Graniteville. You may be here. But you know there's a decision you need to make. And we are unashamed of an invitation in this church of calling people to publicly confess Jesus. And if you've never done that, then I want to invite you to do that this morning. If you've not been baptized, as we saw these five new believers today, take that step. I want to invite you to do that. Maybe you're here and you say, Pastor, I've been saved. I've been baptized. I need a church home. Well, you come today. Wherever you are, whatever campus you're on, just step out and someone will be there. I'll be here to meet you here in the front. Matt, lead us. Would you come now?